So welcome to um, um, this February session of our fourth annual Religions and Practice of Peace Colloquium series. I'm David Hempton, the Dean of the Harvard Divinity School. Uh, thanks to all of you for being with us tonight, for braving a, a cold Boston winter. Um, um, and welcome to everyone, colleagues and friends from across Harvard and the local area, and members of our cross-disciplinary RPP working group and the Sustainable Peace Working Group. We'd like to especially thank our guest speaker, uh, Dr. Erica Chenoweth, for traveling from Denver, Colorado, um, an equally cold city, um, but higher and brighter um, than our one. Uh, so thanks so much for making the effort to be with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Erica flew in today and flies out tomorrow, so we're, um, uh, we're grateful that you've made the time to be with us. Um, we're also grateful to have as our moderator and respondent Dr. Jocelyn uh, Cesari, uh, just on my left, I'll introduce it uh, uh, a bit later. Uh, and also, um, uh, I'm uh, grateful to the co-sponsors of tonight's session, the Women's Studies and Religion Program at Harvard Divinity School. Um, uh, and uh, Anne Browdy, the director, is uh, right here in front of us. Um, uh, and also to the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Um, and um, we're very glad to have with us Sushma Raman, the executive director of the Carr Center, who's just sitting right over here in the front row on the left. Uh, welcome. Thanks for um, uh, coming over uh, to the Divinity School. It's a really important moment. I think the, um, the Kennedy School and Divinity School have just announced an important partnership around um, a collaboration between the Divinity School and the Middle East Institute at the Kennedy School, um, which will be uh, working over the next uh, four or five years on a, on a major new initiative. So it's, uh, it's especially gratifying to have um, colleagues from the Kennedy School here. Uh, Hugh, welcome as well. So thank you for, uh, for coming. We'd also like to express our appreciation to RPP's generous supporters, including um, the Reverend Karen Vickers Budney and, and uh, Al Budney, uh, for helping make these and other RPP activities possible. And of course, as always, to our uh, uh, wonderful RPP staff and graduate assistants um, who work uh, tirelessly in organizing these sessions and. Um, food and registrations and um, uh, all of the work that goes into making an event like this possible. So thank you everyone for your good work on that. So part of our mission in RPP is to explore how spiritual and human values, uh, positive engagements across religions and cultures and nonviolent resources can help us as a human family to address our big problems in a way that enhances cooperation, justice, equity, and harmony. And we're pondering these issues with colleagues across Harvard in our Emerging Sustainable Peace Initiative. And an important related question is the role of nonviolent civil resistance in these pursuits. While many people have long advocated for nonviolence on moral and spiritual grounds, there's uh, now a growing appreciation, I think, of the strategic importance of nonviolence on practical grounds. And we're grateful to be able to benefit tonight from the, incense, uh, from the insights of uh, Dr. Chenoweth, who is a leading expert on the strategic effectiveness of nonviolent civil resistance, who will share her research with us, as well as delve into the role of spiritually engaged communities and women in such movements. Um, 
We're also delighted to have with us as moderator and respondent, Dr. Jocelyn Cesare. Um, Jocelyn holds the Chair of Religion and Politics at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. She is research fellow at Georgetown University's uh, Berkeley Center on Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. Her work on religion, political violence, and conflict resolution has garnered recognition and awards from numerous international organizations, such as the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs, the Royal Society for Arts in the UK, and the European Academy of Religion. She is a professorial fellow at the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Society at the Australian Catholic University, and she teaches on contemporary Islam and politics at uh, Harvard Divinity School and directs the Islam in the West program. Jocelyn is a remarkably productive scholar, um, as I've just learned tonight. Um, her most recent books, and most recent book, just hot off the press, uh, literally, it's quite warm, um, is uh, What is Political Islam, uh, published uh, in 2018. Um, and she has also written recently, uh, remarkably, where, 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 where do you get time, energy, and talent? Um, uh, uh, her most recent books are Islam, Gender, and Democracy in a Comparative Perspective, uh, OUP 2017, The Awakening of Muslim Democracy, Religion, Modernity, and the State, uh, 2014, and Why the West Fears Islam, an Exploration of Islam and Western Liberal Democracies in 2013. Her book, When As Islam and Democracy Meet, Muslims in Europe and the United States, is a reference in the study of European Islam and integration of Muslim minorities in secular democracies. She also edited the 2015 Oxford Handbook of European Islam. So we're delighted, uh, Jocelyn, that you're with us. Thanks for all that you do for our school, and thanks for being here tonight. So I'll invite um, Jocelyn Tesari to um, introduce our uh, speaker for tonight. Thank So I'm delighted to introduce Professor Erika Shinovitz. She's an internationally recognized authority on political violence and its alternatives. She's professor and associate dean for research at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Foreign Policy Magazine ranked her among the top 100, 100 global thinkers of 2013. Dr. Shinovitz won the 2014 Karl Deutsch Award, given annually by the International <coughs> Studies Association to the scholar under 40 who has made the most significant impact on the field of international politics or peace research. A book with Maria Stefan, Why Civil Resistance Works, the Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict won the 2013 Go Mayor, I'm not sure I pronounced this right, Go We Mayor <laughs> Award of, for Ideas Improving World Order, and the 2012 Woodrow Wilson Foundation Award. Um, I can keep going. Uh, I keep with the book. Maybe I will shorten on the on the press <laughs> Dr. Shinovitz has authored or edited four books, including The Politics of Terror, Oxford 2018, with Pauline Moore, Rethinking Violence, States and Non-State Actors in Conflict, MIT 2010, with Adria Lawrence, 
Why Civil Resistance Works, Columbia University Press, 2011, with Maria Stefan, and Political Violence by Sage in 2013. Her research has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, The Economy, the Boston Globe, and that's what I'm going to shorten a little. Okay. <laughs> Uh, she co-hosts the blog Political Violence at a Glance, hosts the blog Rational Insurgent, and blogs occasionally at the Monkey Cage, which is, I think, hosted by the Washington Post, right? Along with Mary Berry, she co-directs the Inclusive Global Leadership Initiative, which seeks to shine a light on the work of women activists around the world. And along with Jeremy Pressman, she co-directs the Crowd Counting Consortium, a public interest project that documents political mobilization in the US during the Trump administration. She holds a PhD and an MA in political science from the University of Colorado and a BA in political science <laughs> and German from the University of Dayton. Please help me welcome Dr. Shenovitz. Well, thank you very much for the warm welcome, and uh, it's nice to see some uh, familiar faces in the crowd and to meet all of you. Thank you for coming out for an evening event. I'm delighted to have an opportunity to speak with you here at the Harvard Divinity School. This is my first time here. Uh, even though I spent a couple years as a postdoc at the Kennedy School um, about a decade ago at this point. Um, I just want to thank uh, the organizers and, and Dean Hempton and, um, and the others that I've had contact with, uh, the people who have uh, staffed this event and are providing the food and, and um, facilities for this event uh, for their good work. Um, I want to thank the co-sponsors, the CAR Center and the uh, Women's Studies and Religion Program um, for uh, hosting this event. And I also would be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, uh, Jean Sharp, who was, is kind of the father of this field of strategic nonviolent action, passed away in East Boston a week and a half ago. And it is not an exaggeration to say that I wouldn't be here at all right now if it weren't for the monumental contributions of Jean Sharp to this field to the world um, and uh, to the research that I'm about to present. So this will be a wholly inadequate tribute to his uh, contributions <laughs> to the world. Um, but needless to say, everything about, I'm about to present was inspired largely by Jean's work. And so I just want to put that out there uh, at the beginning. So um, I was asked to come and talk uh, with this group of people here at the Harvard Divinity School and the, uh, the, um, the Religions and the Practice of Peace Colloquium series about uh, some political science research on um, the strategic logic of, of nonviolent resistance. And I think Dean Hempton set up this, um, this question nicely at the outset by saying that while many different um, spiritual and religiously minded uh, communities and groups have long advocated nonviolence on moral or spiritual grounds, um, there is and has been over the past 60 or 70 years a growing community of scholars and practitioners who have um, advocated nonviolent resistance on more strategic or pragmatic grounds. And what I want to do uh, with this talk today is, is focus first on that set of arguments 
and the evidence that form um, some basis of support for it. Uh, and then talk a little bit about the ways that I see productive linkages between um, spiritually minded or faith-based communities and uh, this sort of strategic approach. And in some way, I'm going to argue toward the end that this is a, in, in many ways a, a false dichotomy, at least in practice, if not in theory. So I was motivated to take up the question of um, whether nonviolent resistance was as effective or more effective than armed struggle in achieving major political and social goals about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago at this point, um, when, I was, um, when I first was introduced by, uh, to the work of Gene Sharp and, and others, Peter Ackerman, Jack Duvall, Kurt Schock, many others, um, who were making this argument that nonviolent resistance could be in many ways a functional equivalent to armed struggle. And there were many different cases from around the world that suggested that people power movements where unarmed civilians were using a variety of techniques like protests, boycotts, strikes, stayaways in coordinated fashion could actually actively confront their opponents without having to harm them physically and still achieve major gains, if not everything that they were asking for. And so um, these very convincing case studies from around the world were surprising to me as somebody who was studying um, political violence um, because many of the different cases that were being discussed were cases that we would typically associate with armed insurrection. So for example, one of the, the key examples that, that came up in this literature was the people power movement in the Philippines, which um, I had really never heard about. I had heard about all of the armed insurgencies, US counterinsurgency programs in the Philippines and the like but I hadn't really known much about the people power movement, even though it was one of the, the best known and best documented um, mass mobilizations um, in the last century. And uh, this was surprising as well because the field of political science had largely marginalized the study of, uh, of nonviolent civil resistance um, and instead privileged the study of essentially things that blow up. So, what happened is that uh, my colleague Maria Stefan and I set out to collect data um, on all known mass mobilizations from 1900 to 2006. That date of 2006 is merely a function of the timing of our collaboration. <laughs> we started working together in 2006. So we collected data on um, all known mass mobilizations where people were actually um, making claims that would result in the overthrow of a dictatorship or uh, territorial independence, either through secession, through kicking out of foreign military occupation, through anti-colonial uh, movements, or um, through um, some other form of self-determination. And the reason we studied these cases in particular is because these claims are what political scientists would call maximalist claims. They would fundamentally reorder the shape of the society and the state um, that these groups were confronting. And the reason that we picked those cases is because um, for those studying uh, armed insurrection, these typified those types of mobilizations. And uh, there was a sense that we didn't want to collect data for comparison against those armed uh, campaigns where the nonviolent movements were basically looking for reform or the expansion of rights short of kind of full regime overthrow or territorial independence. <laughs> 
Another thing that we did was we cut off um, the, the campaigns only to, to movements that had already mobilized at least 1,000 observed participants. So we're already looking at kind of mature, major mobilizations. And then we categorize them into two different groups. One is uh, groups that use primarily armed struggle as their main mode of confronting the opponent. And the other is um, groups that use primarily nonviolent resistance methods as their primary mode of, of confrontation. Of course, there is kind of a middle of the road category, um, which we classified usually as primarily nonviolent campaigns with violent flanks. This becomes important, um, and I'll refer back uh, to these cases toward the end of, of my talk. And um, then we uh, basically assigned them um, an outcome, whether these campaigns succeeded in achieving their goals uh, or not. And in order to succeed, they had to have achieved their um, stated outcome within a year of the peak of the campaign um, in terms of mobilization. They had to have had a decided impact on the outcome. So like if a dictator died of a heart attack in office, we wouldn't count that as a success, even though you could make the claim that indirectly the movement's stress <laughs> might have contributed to that outcome. Um, and we also, um, they had to have achieved what they said they wanted. So in other words, they had to actually topple a regime dictatorship, not just um, force a dictator to hold elections and then win them. Again, even though that would be a major concession to such movements, um, we, we wanted to adopt a very strict definition of success. Now, why did we limit um, our definitions and our scope so much? Well, a, a backstory to this is that Maria and I were somewhat antagonistic collaborators. Maria anticipated that nonviolent resistance movements would be really successful, and I anticipated that they would be really not successful. <laughs> and so in order to sort of set up the intellectual bet in the most honest way, we, we examined the hardest campaigns and the hardest um, ways to succeed, the hardest definition of success that we could come up with. So um, after all that business, which took about a year and a half, we circulated our list of 320 plus campaigns of, uh, during that time period around the world uh, to experts in the field to make sure that we had captured them and characterized them appropriately. And uh, once we did that, uh, we performed the analysis. And uh, basically, the, the descriptive statistics are uh, what's on this slide. Um, as you'll see, I've updated these data now through 2015, so, um, but they, they're basically identical findings to those that uh, ended in 2016. So the nonviolent campaigns have been about twice as effective as their violent counterparts. They've also been more likely to achieve major concessions short of full success. And certainly, they're much less likely to fail than their violent counterparts. Now, one of the things that's particularly interesting and I think incredibly important and relevant uh, to those who want to undertake research or practice on this topic is the dramatic growth in the use of nonviolent civil resistance over time. In fact, if we updated um, this last set of bars through 2017, we definitely live in the most contentious decade on record since 1900 um, in terms of onsets of new maximalist nonviolent uprisings. Um, and as you can also see, the onsets of new violent insurgencies of this type have declined. Now, this is not something you'd necessarily glean from the nightly news. Um, but in fact, violent insurgency is kind of going out of style, and nonviolent civil resistance is becoming the primary mode of contention in our time. So um, 
For somebody like me, this raises a series of really interesting questions. The first is, you know, why is nonviolent resistance so much more effective than armed struggle? And when we dug into the data, um, the primary uh, reason or characteristic of nonviolent campaigns that differentiates them from armed insurgencies is their sheer size. The average nonviolent campaign is something like 11 times larger as a proportion of the total population of a country than the average violent campaign. And um, this is uh, really important in explaining why these campaigns are able to assemble the mass power that they are to affect change. Now, it's not rocket science to suggest that the larger any kind of revolutionary campaign is, the more likely it is to succeed. Scholars of revolutions and social movements and civil war have long argued that participation bases are really important in determining the outcomes of any type of challenge against entrenched authority. Mark Lickbach, uh, who is a political economist at the University of Maryland, in 1995 wrote a book called The Rebel's Dilemma, in which he speculated that if 5% of the population of a country rose up against its government, no government on the planet could withstand such a challenge because it's, it just imposed way too many costs on, that, um, uh, on the government to either suppress the campaign or to mix suppression and concessions in a way that would basically collapse or topple the regime. That was a speculated number based on formal models and some economic um, models, um, but wasn't tested on data on mass uprisings. So in our data, in fact, um, the threshold is even lower than 5%. It's 3.5% of the population, um, after which if 3.5% of a population rise up, we haven't counted any cases where that campaign failed. The key trick here, though, is that the campaigns that are more likely to cross that 3.5% threshold are nonviolent ones um, because they are able to elicit much larger bases of support than the average violent uprising. So why is that? Well, armed struggle uh, requires a number or has a number of different barriers to participation um, that make it very difficult for many armed um, movements to become as inclusive and participatory as they otherwise would like to be. Um, the first is a, a high physical barrier for participation. Now, of course, there are many different forms of passive and indirect support for armed insurrection, but those that actually participate in the fighting and an armed confrontations against the opponents usually have to fit a certain physical profile. They have to have a certain set of physical abilities. They have to be willing to take a certain set of physical risks that naturally precludes the participation of very large proportions of the population. Um, Nonviolent campaigns, on the other hand, have such a large and diverse array of available techniques of struggle um, that many people, regardless of their level of physical ability or um, willingness to expose themselves to risk can participate. Um, so, for example, um, many nonviolent campaigns have used the general strike paired with the stay-at-home demonstration as one of their key uh, tools in their toolkit. Now, a stay-at-home demonstration requires you to basically hang out for a few days. <laughs> you want to make sure you have enough stuff to keep you busy, but it doesn't require direct exposure to the opponent yet it can be an incredibly, incredibly powerful technique of non-cooperation that can shut down the economy of an urban area if enough people do it. 
So it does allow um, the participation of, of people that wouldn't ordinarily want to stand in front of a tank or, or um, in fact, shoot at one. Um, the second lower barrier to participation is a lower commitment barrier. And by this, this doesn't mean commitment to the cause, but rather how hard it is to get into um, an insurrection and how hard it is to get out of it once you're in. So for many armed groups, it's actually hard to join if you're not willing to kill somebody. And many armed groups um, actually ask their recruits to engage in uh, violence against the opponent when they join to make sure that they're not infiltrators. It's a, it's a screening technique. And uh, the, the trick is that once that's done, um, it's very hard to get out because the group becomes basically your protection. So um, for nonviolent campaigns, um, there's a much lower commitment barrier because people don't necessarily have to give up their day job. They don't necessarily have to um, use the group as their sole source of protection and so forth in order to participate. There's also a lower informational barrier. This is to say that um, many different recruits or volunteers for armed insurrection always want to know how big the group is, how many people they're actually going to meet when they decide to join the group, um, and you know, kind of relatedly, how likely it is it that the group is going to be successful. And it's hard to know um, without actually showing up, um, because many armed groups kind of advertise their size by using different types of armed activities that make them look bigger than they are, like uh, different types of assassination campaigns, um, street fighting, and, and um, the use of, of powerful um, improvised weapons and things to, to make large detonations. And, uh, they essentially are trying to signal their size and capacity, but without showing really how many of them there are. Nonviolent campaigns, many of the techniques that are used, particularly protests and, and demonstrations, um, are actively there to generate common knowledge about the size of the group and to reassure people that would like to join uh, that they're not going to be alone. There's a really powerful kind of cognitive process around safety and numbers. Our brains tell us whether we should be uh, afraid of going to a crowd or not, uh, largely based on how big it is and how much fun it looks like. Uh, so, for example, if you're sitting in your apartment one night and your neighbor comes to you and says, we're going to have a mass demonstration down in the, the public square at 10 o'clock tonight. Um, we anticipate police are going to show up at some point, but we've talked before, and I know that you sympathize with the cause, so I hope you make it. If you're like me, you're probably not going to look out uh, your window at 9.45 and just say, I'm just going to show up at the square and see how many people sh come. Um, you're probably going to wait until like 10.30 and look out the window and see if it looks like a party. And if it looks like a party, then you're probably going to show up and probably stand in the middle if it actually is dangerous. So a lot of the techniques themselves generate these, um, what cognitive uh, psychologists refer to as common knowledge generators, which is just that process that's almost subconscious, letting us know that we're actually safe to participate. And then um, there are lower cognitive barriers to participation. This is simply to say that a person doesn't have to override whatever hesitation they have to kill others in order to participate in a nonviolent campaign. So why do numbers matter? It's not necessarily just because um, the swelling of large crowds just inevitably leads to kind of catastrophic or uh, triumphant change in the country's setting. Um, but rather because very large numbers of people who represent a diverse range of sectors in the society 
allow a movement to make use of uh, political leverage that comes to them as a result of this mass participation. So um, if there are a large number of women, elderly, uh, people with disabilities, minority groups or others who are typically marginalized from the population and young people who feel that they can participate, then that gives the movement access to all of their friends, their neighbors, their business associates, their extended family, and many others uh, who can be affected by the participation of their acquaintances. And uh, this has real political effects. And uh, this is where I'll return somewhat to some of the insights produced by Gene Sharp and uh, others influenced by his work. So really, um, the way that uh, civil resistance works is not by melting the heart of the opponent. It's not necessarily by appealing to the morality of the opponent and converting them to one side. Instead, it rests on the assumption that there is no such thing as a tyrant who isn't 100% dependent on the cooperation, obedience, and help of people that reside in various pillars of support. And in fact, every tyrant, no matter how tyrannical, is completely reliant and dependent on the continued cooperation of people that work in the security forces, economic and business elites, civilian bureaucrats, state media, religious and cultural authorities, educational uh, institutions, and the like. And then what happens is that the larger the number of participants and the more diverse those participants are, the more likely they are to have direct access to people in these pillars of support. They're their family members. They are people that um, have their kids in the same school and would like to live with one another side by side um, in the long term, likely. Um, they would rather stay uninvolved in major political conflicts between the opponent and uh, the, uh, the, the challengers. Um, but at a certain point, they may feel they have to make a choice. Um, so the way that this often looks is that there may be mass mobilizations for many months um, that look like they're having very little effect, but they're producing a lot of kind of, um, um, you know, attention. And they're starting to set the agenda. And they're starting to dominate political space. And then uh, there might be kind of a key moment where all of a sudden, um, people power movements start to initiate um, loyalty changes among erstwhile regime elites. And once those loyalty shifts start, that's when you start to see these pillars of support crumble. So if the opponent tries to lean on them to replenish power, they're not available. Um, a very concrete example of this happened in Serbia in 2000, where hundreds of thousands of people descended on Belgrade in uh, late September and early October of 2000 to demand that Slobodan Milosevic leave office after fraudulent elections. And uh, what happened there is that um, the, uh, some of the organizers of the mass demonstrations in the parliamentary square in Belgrade had stolen police micro or, uh, walkie talkies. And so they actually heard the order come down um, that the police should fire live fire on the demonstrators. And they could see that the police just stood there and didn't take any action. So of course, journalists and scholars rushed in to ask the police why they didn't. And they said very interesting and enlightening things, like, I thought I saw my children in the crowd, or I thought I saw the guy who sells me liquor on a Saturday in the crowd at a discount and I didn't want to lose my discount, or you know, very banal kind of uh, like personal micro-level relationships that then translate into like mass political power in key moments. So importantly, the responses don't necessarily indicate that change of heart, 
but rather an interest calculation and people that reside in these pillars of support about whether it's in their own short and long-term interests to continue to obey or to disobey. So um, this is a, a hypothesis that was articulated by, by Sharp and others. And so Maria and I tested it on data from our data set um, where what we looked at is the, the probability of increased participation of these campaigns on um, the likelihood that security forces themselves would defect. Um, and defection doesn't mean put down your guns and join the other side necessarily. It can be non-cooperation or disobedience, as I mentioned. But it certainly is a very strong association. Um, the association is not the same for armed campaigns. So security forces typically um, don't become any more likely to defect to an armed campaign or disobey their authority when an, an armed campaign becomes very large. In fact, they, they tend to start fighting for their lives. So um, sometimes, of course, uh, there is lethal repression against nonviolent mass movements. In fact, most of these movements are emerging because they live in a very oppressive system in the first place, and it's the way that they see available to try to contest it. But, you know, they're making maximalist claims that will fundamentally alter the nature of their societies. And so almost all of them in our data set experience some degree of lethal repression at some point in the campaign's life cycle. But even in those cases where there was lethal oppression, the nonviolent campaigns were still outperforming the violent ones by a two-to-one margin. And um, the reasons for this, we think, are, first of all, that repression against unarmed people is politically riskier. Sharp called this political jujitsu, or using the opponent's strength against them as its core weakness. Here, um, the idea is basically that um, when, uh, when states crack down on primarily unarmed civilians, it elicits outrage among the population uh, that sees it as excessive or disproportionate to the threat. This same dynamic is not seen necessarily with regard to repression against armed campaigns. It may produce outrage, but that outrage usually does not result in subsequent increases in mobilization. The other issue is that repression can be practically much costlier against very large campaigns, which nonviolent campaigns tend to be. Um, the reason is because there is a widespread availability to very large campaigns of different types of methods that reduce exposure to risk of repression. So um, some people call this uh, a, a differentiation between methods of concentration and methods of dispersion. Concentration is when very large numbers of people assemble mass in a key area. It's incredibly disruptive. Um, it makes all the front page news uh, pictures. So you, you've probably seen pictures like this in, in major newspapers because it's very dramatic looking. Um, and lo lots of people doing something at the same time nonviolently uh, is interesting. Um, the problem is that if it's all a campaign does, if all they do is assemble mass over and over again in the same place, it becomes very risky in most of these settings um, because it's very easy for the opponent to anticipate, surround them, and use um, very lethal forms of repression, uh, using encirclement and, and the like. And the other thing is it becomes very predictable, so it loses some of its leverage or, or disruptive power. So very large movements can shift to methods of dispersion. These are where people stay away from places they're expected to go, like this strike in um, Kashmir, actually, where uh, what this picture is showing is, um, is the outcome of a, an organization's um, call for a mass demonstration in the um, kind of gallery where this is taking place. And they had announced this 
for many weeks before and told the security forces they would be there. And then what they didn't tell them was that actually the, it was a strike. So the security forces came out and nobody was there. So instead what you see, you never see this picture in the front page news because nobody knows what you're looking at. You're looking at a very powerful economic tool um, of non-cooperation while also forcing the regime to put people out front and pay them probably overtime to stand there bored, really bored, um, and, 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 and maybe not getting paid and you know, just not, it's not the most fun thing to be doing. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, that is really interesting is that some very skilled movements are able to shift between these methods of concentration and methods of dispersion in ways that ramp up disruption while simultaneously reducing exposure to risk for the large number of people participating. A clear example of this was during the Iranian revolution of 77 to 79 where during the final kind of climax of this movement, the 100 days of the 100 days revolution, the first 90 or so days were street demonstrations, funeral processions, and other things. And those um, were very disruptive. About 10% of the Iranian population participated at that time. It was an incredibly cross-cutting um, mass mobilization, one of the largest um, in the 20th century for sure, uh, against the Shah. And after that first 90 or so days, uh, you know, people, there were, t there were thousands of deaths. I mean, people were, were the, the movements, the, the uprising was sustaining real casualties, and, um, and it wasn't really clear what direction it was going to go. And then um, the oil workers um, in the sort of rural areas went on strike. And when they did that, they paired it with the stay-at-home demonstrations. So the security forces had to go door to door and pull those oil workers back out onto the streets and march them to the oil fields where they worked at half pace. And the next day it was the same story. They you know, went door to door, pulled these oil workers back out onto the streets, marched them to the oil fields where they worked at half pace. After a few more days of this, um, you know, people in the security forces started calling in sick because they did not want to continue that level of interpersonal repression in places where they expected to want to live with their families for the rest of the life of their lives down the streets from these people that whose houses they were entering uh, unwanted and they also anticipated that they were not going to get their overtime because the oil fields were pumping in half pace and there was nothing they could do about it so they defected on mass by calling in sick and um, this is a kind of clever form of non-cooperation with plausible deniability and within a couple more days the Shah had to leave the country so um, what happens in countries where civil resistance campaigns succeed? Um, I've been really interested in trying to assess the longer-term impacts of these campaigns over the past couple of years. And uh, there are three really important outcomes that speak to the relative costs of armed insurrection compared with nonviolent resistance. One of them deals with um, just the onset of mass atrocities, here defined as when a state kills more than a thousand unarmed people in, in a single spell. And what you'll see here is a comparison of mass killings in the context of major uprisings, when those uprisings are violent and when they're nonviolent. And there's a dramatic, um, dramatic difference in the number of nonviolent episodes that experience these mass killings, primarily because of that defection um, uh, outcome that is uh, more likely to happen with nonviolent campaigns, 
And what many different um, uh, dictators recognize or colonial authorities recognize uh, when they are considering how to deal with the mass movement is that it is risky to even order live fire or any type of real lethal repression on unarmed demonstrators because they risk the defections happening. So it's very hard for us to know whether this trend is because the leaders know how risky it is and they don't want it, their security forces to defect outright, and so they just never, they, they order other things like crowd control tactics and whatever, or whether when they order it, the defections take place. And, and it seems to be a combination of the two. Another very interesting difference in terms of the long-term outcomes of these campaigns is that nonviolent uh, countries in which there were nonviolent campaigns are something like 10 times more likely to emerge as democratic countries um, five years after the campaign is over. And we think this is partially because um, uh, armed campaigns tend to adhere kind of martial values that, um, if victorious, kind of uh, reconstitute themselves in the, in the nature of the rule of the new uh, leaders, whereas nonviolent campaigns, because they're so large and inclusive, because um, there's already been kind of the development of a consensus, the, the establishment of norms of nonviolent conflict resolution and fair play in the context of the campaign, that they're more likely to sort of um, uh, replicate uh, those norms in the new government. We also look at uh, the probability that civil wars will break out in countries in which these two different campaign types have taken place uh, within a decade, and nonviolent campaigns are about uh, countries in which there have been nonviolent campaigns are about 15% less likely to experience civil war onset um, than armed campaigns. And these are all, of course, controlling for lots of other factors that would influence those outcomes. So all told, there really seem to be four different characteristics that, um, that are present in campaigns that succeed. The first is that they tend to build very large and diverse bases of participation. They tend to maintain them over time. They tend to uh, increase the size and diversity over time. The second is that they use a variety of nonviolent methods. That is to say they don't stick to a single set of techniques like protest or persuasion, but they branch out into using different forms of non-cooperation, developing parallel institutions or other forms of um, nonviolent intervention, as, as Sharp would call them, um, and the like. The third thing is that they elicit those loyalty shifts and key pillars of support. It's not always the case that these will be security forces. There are many contexts in which it's incredibly unlikely that security forces would ever defect um, in the face of a nonviolent campaign. In South Africa, for example, it was going to be very unlikely that any of the um, pro-apartheid um, police were going to defect to the, the majority um, uh, anti-apartheid movement of, um, that the black townships were mobilizing and so forth. Um, so instead of focusing on trying to elicit security force defections, that movement focused on economic defections, which were very successful um, through boycotts of white businesses in South Africa, as well as the um, international sanctions and divestment campaigns that they cultivated through their transnational solidarity networks. And then um, the, the fourth thing that they tend to do is they tend to maintain discipline, even as repression escalates. Now, what does this mean? It basically means that the campaign stays on the initiative and sticks to its plan and is not provoked into doing things that it otherwise wouldn't want to do, like adopting an armed wing that then was coming to the defense of the movement um, 
uh, or you know, embracing an armed wing that self-initiates. So um, as I wrap up, I just want to point out that there have been some recent kind of declines in the absolute success rates of nonviolent resistance campaigns. It seems that something shifted somewhere in the mid-2000s um, where we started to see um, an, an absolute decline in, in the effectiveness, although not a relative decline. Um, what I mean by this is that armed campaigns have not become any more successful. Um, in fact, they've become less successful than in prior decades. They're the least successful of any time in the 20th century at this point. Um, but uh, nonviolent campaigns have also become less successful in the past few years. Now, there are lots of ways that we could explain this. We could explain it by just kind of a, an authoritarian learning curve uh, where different dictatorships are becoming better at um, suppressing nonviolent dissent. We could explain it by um, the massive increase in the onset of nonviolent civil resistance campaigns that may be set on prematurely because they were excited by things happening in their region, and so they mobilized before having um, prepared for a multi-year mass campaign. We could also explain it um, by um, the fact that there might be a shift in the character of many of the nonviolent movements um, that have been setting on recently. And one of the shifts in character um, is the greater willingness, it seems, of um, different nonviolent campaigns these days to embrace those violent flanks. Um, now here, what, the way that we de define violent flanks is um, parts of a primarily nonviolent movement that begin to routinize the use of violence against the opponent um, so that, the, that you know 99% of the people are still engaged in nonviolent resistance, but there are small groups within the movement um, or individuals within the movement that kind of always show up and engage in violent action, or the movement actually outright has an armed wing. I'm doing work right now to even further differentiate those two dynamics, but that's what counts here. And um, one of the things that I think might be interesting to this group also is a tendency to um, kind of uh, move away from or abandon some of the spiritual roots of nonviolent resistance um, within many contemporary nonviolent movements. Um, in the scholarship, there was a, a real um, rationale for this, uh, which uh, was manifested in the fact that pacifism as a form of knowledge was largely subjugated uh, after World War II. So there was a huge, huge body of literature on pacifism from political philosophy, from political science, well, political science really wasn't around yet, but diplomatic history and other things um, which burgeoned um, in the first half of the 20th century and then was largely subjugated in the field after World War II. They kind of lost the argument and were marginalized and then very few people wanted to openly identify as pacifist scholars after World War II. Richard Jackson has a really terrific um, set of articles on this right now. So um, at the same time, you know, th th this is happening. We have Gandhi, uh, who gave civil resistance its name, whose work directly inspired the work of Jean Sharp, um, who lived and worked in an ashram and actively produced um, an autobiography that informed many different uh, nonviolent activists uh, throughout the, the second half of the 20th century, um, but was largely read at that point as a pragmatist 
in part to navigate around the subjugation of pacifism um, as, a, as a form of knowledge. And so um, what we can see here is just that as nonviolent resistance, um, you know, Gandhi's own named tactic, has increased around the world, mentions of Gandhi and books have declined rapidly. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting that this is not like, I mean, it's statistically significant, but it's not very good data because it's just Google engrams um, and it's just English language books. But it's something that um, I think is interesting because with my familiarity of different contemporary nonviolent movements, the spiritual roots of the technique are largely set aside and the sort of pragmatic elements are largely what motivate people to use it and to discuss it. And so um, what I want to wrap up with is a, is a quick discussion about how I see faith communities as having played such a key role in many of these nonviolent campaigns, whether they want to admit it or not, um, and how uh, we can sort of recapture or revive um, these types of associations going forward. So of course, um, one of the things that faith communities have always done um, with regard to nonviolent campaigns is that they have helped to express claims based on universal morality. Um, that has had widespread resonance precisely because of their um, grassroots. So um, the abolitionists, for example, made many of their claims on the basis of, um, of Christian theology. Um, the anti-nuclear and peace movements made many of their claims, again, on the basis of Christian theology. And uh, in fact, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the Nobel Peace Prize winning multi-faith uh, organization that's still around, um, you know, again, was like a key, uh, key movement in, in articulating the rationale for peace and the end of war and is now very much involved in um, discussions around what justice looks like in the 21st century. Um, during the Civil Rights Movement, um, the SCLC was absolutely vital in articulating the claims of uh, civil rights in the United States. The uh, Reverend uh, William and Barber today uh, has his Moral Mondays uh, project, which very much has um, kind of resonance across many different communities on the basis of universal moral claims rooted in Christian theology. Um, we also have um, examples of um, mass mobilization motivated largely by um, the articulation of claims to human rights that emanated from Catholic theologians and practitioners like Bishop Romero in El Salvador. Today, uh, the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative is underway. How many people have heard of this? Great, a few people. So the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative is a, is a multi-group initiative to um, provide robust empirical and, um, and theological support um, to Pope Francis to call into question the just war doctrine um, of the Catholic uh, tradition and uh, to um, really lobby to try to have him uh, issue a new encyclical centering peace and nonviolence in the Catholic tradition, um, which would be, by the way, a huge deal. Because of course, the flip side of this is that the Catholic Church was instrumental in articulating the just war doctrine, which is the rationale um, for when it's okay to use violence, which it turns out can basically be rationalized anytime based on just war doctrine. Um, the second thing that um, faith communities um, can do is that they convene and build capacity for social movements that otherwise don't have a great deal of social space for this. Um, consciousness raising is a major uh, form of this that can take place um, at the pulpit when 
um, when uh, ministers and, and lay ministers um, talk to the most important issues of the day. Um, trainings take place in churches always because they seem to enjoy, in many contexts, some immunity from intrusion by the state. Um, they can provide sources of leadership, both moral, spiritual, and practical leadership of uh, mass movements. They can be sites for communication, just places where people come to learn what's next in a movement. They can be sites of deliberation. Um, one of the most poignant um, examples of this that I've heard of was in the US Civil Rights Movement. Um, many of the black churches in the South were sites where um, people would deliberate what they needed to do next and whether they could handle it given um, the atrocities of the previous week. So for example, um, one of my colleagues told me that in her church, um, every uh, Thursday they would gather together and have song and praise. And then the minister would get up and say, shall we march on Sunday? Because uh, there'd been a killing or a bombing or some other um, you know, lynching or something really uh, dramatic and traumatic to the community, and they weren't sure whether they could do it, whether they could march on Sunday, given this, or whether they needed to heal on Sunday. And so the Thursday sessions were there for the community to allow itself time and space to deliberate what was possible for them in that moment, so that they all knew by consensus the next time they marched on Sunday, they were all prepared for it, um, and they were prepared to do it within the parameters that had been agreed upon by the core council. Um, faith communities can provide important capacity for internal dispute mediation. Um, this is something that, um, uh, I don't know how many of you have been involved in social movements or in activist uh, organizations, but they argue, sometimes pretty bad. right? One of the, one of the key challenges for, for such movements is division and splintering. Um, division and splintering is is probably the, you know, I, I don't know what the number one way they fail is, but I would say that's probably the number one way. Civil resistance is a divide and rule strategy. Obviously, one of the better ways to, to crush them is to divide them. So um, basically, um, I think faith communities often have capacities for dispute mediation or dispute resolution that can assist movements in navigating um, their problems. Certainly, they can provide some of the moral and spiritual rationale for maintaining nonviolent discipline. Um, of course, there are pragmatic arguments for doing it, but um, in general, with many of the movements um, with which I'm familiar, if it's a, a pragmatic decision, then it can also be a pragmatic decision to stop doing it. And one of the key critiques of people like Kevin Clements and others of, of my work and the work of Sharp and, and uh, other people that focus on strategic nonviolent action is that by missing out on the moral uh, dimensions of the use of nonviolent resistance, you give people no reason to stick to it um, if they decide that it's not working in the short term. Um, and then finally, uh, churches simply have access to very huge numbers of people in the society. And so they can be places where um, mass mobilization can emanate from in ways that would be very difficult to organize, especially in, in quite repressive places. They can be sites of tactical innovation and creativity. Mosques during the Arab awakenings were absolutely crucial um, in organizing uh, flash mobs and mass demonstrations after Friday prayers. Um, in the people power movement in the Philippines, there was a very important moment where um, uh, Marcos actually ordered his air force to bomb um, uh, mass demonstrators in the, that were gathered in the streets. And uh, some of the, the um, helicopters went out to drop essentially barrel bombs, which are very similar um, to what Assad has used in Syria. 
uh, on these mass demonstrators, and this was known because there had been a coup and some of the um, colonels had radios and they heard that this was going to happen, so they warned the people, and a group of nuns actually got together and formed them, their bodies in the shape of a cross right in the middle of the square. So when the helicopters came over and saw that, they just flew away. They, they could not do it. And so, again, it sort of provides a, a tactic that's creative but also appeals to this universal sense of morality, um, which in that moment, um, you know, may, it, it probably didn't win over the people um, who were about to bomb them, but it, but it definitely dissuaded them in the moment from taking that action. Um, certainly, um, faith communities can be sources of spiritual comfort and nourishment. Again, in the, in the process of the civil rights movement, I think that it was, um, it was not um, irrelevant um, that black churches in the South were leading uh, in this way and that uh, the churches provided opportunities for communities to heal together um, in the context of incredible brutality, um, both before and during the movement. Um, and uh, certainly churches have often provided safe haven, and we see this happening again in the United States today um, with the sanctuary movement having resurrected itself um, in the face of uh, an increase in mass deportation. So um, one thing I want to mention is that certainly um, contemporary movements, as I've mentioned, have seemed to move away from the sort of spiritual and moral roots of nonviolent resistance. And that begs a question as to why. I don't know why, but I'll just tell you what I think. Um, what I think is that many of the different movements today have seemed to hang on to more secular, rational um, kind of legal claims in the Weberian sense compared to sort of traditional moral universalist claims, um, which have largely kind of been, um, I think, abdicated to the right. And so kind of progressive left movements have moved more into sort of rationalist um, uh, dimensions of arguments about rights, about justice, and so forth. And um, in the context of contemporary social movements in the West, I think part of the reason for this is that they tend to be oriented around exactly upending what they see as traditional values or challenging existing power structures, which some, can sometimes include faith traditions and communities that have sometimes been perceived as sites reinforcing patriarchy, heteronormativity, economic inequality, and racial and ethnic discrimination. In other words, many movements today seem to think that faith is something to challenge, not to ally with. Um, and you know, the, I think that there are certainly uh, examples that we could pull from where faith communities have uh, kind of um, reinforced oppressive practices a rationalized violence, um, particularly in excluding uh, communities that otherwise, um, you know, different progressive movements around the world today are trying to include. So um, on that note, I think that one of the things that is a challenge uh, for contemporary practitioners of civil resistance and nonviolent action is to try to kind of make the argument that there uh, is a way to um, recover the moral and spiritual roots and traditional values in a way that is actually inclusive, that, that, that includes more people, um, and that doesn't exclude people. And that that might actually be one of the keys to making sure that nonviolent movements are actually nonviolent movements, um, that the alternatives that they articulate for a vision of a sustainably peaceful society resonate with very large numbers of people, including those that may have been their critics. 
Um, but I think one of the, the ultimate um, important lessons here is just that armed struggle does indeed have realistic alternatives um, that faith communities along with everyone else um, recognizing this will absolutely um, contribute to a greater sense of peace and justice around the world. Thank you. Thank you, Erika. This, um, this is a very important work because it put statistical validity on um, the knowledge that was empirically done for several decades. And you mentioned Sharp. I didn't know he died. So, so there have been work done on the efficiency and also the rise of uh, non-violent political resistance for decades. But this is indeed a, a way to uh, convince, and you mentioned them several times, the community of political scientists who indeed tend to take the opposite route. Um, I, I would like to focus my comments on three points. The first one would be uh, more a question to you and to the audience about uh, the impact of this argument on existing conflict. The second point will be about the difference between civil resistance and nonviolence. And the third point, the what's the specificity of the religious dimension in this uh, kind of resistance? So um, if we take this argument, indeed, nonviolence resistant works. So what is the impact or the relevance of this kind of demonstration on the current unfolding conflicts? And that's where the response is difficult for everybody. Because what's, what scholars like uh, Charles Tilly, you mentioned the social movement, Macadam Taro, keep saying is that there is no clear cut response. That what makes any outcome, either in terms of strategy or efficiency, is what kind of interaction is already there between the different actors. So in other words, the choice of a strategy, as well as the outcome of it, is not the addition of the goodwill of people or the rational choice of individuals. It is something that has to do with the relations between different actors. And this has a practical consequence that we are not using enough, which is how do we intervene on the relationship between opponent and challengers? And there are case studies that are successful. Uh, in Colombia, in the northwest of the country, this was one of the most ravaged country by, by political violence. And what happened is locally, the church, because the church was not seen automatically on one side or the other, 
created an initiative called the Educational Citadel in the, in the decade of 2000. And what happened, the gangs, the families, the local administration came all together. This is the kind of relationship, interaction, that may foster you know, the, the, the decline of violence or the choice of non-violence. So this, I, I can give more, but I don't want to be too long on that. So this is my first point. What is the impact of this argument on existing conflict? And maybe, she, you know, shift also to the context and the relations between actors. The second point is about civil resistance and non-violence. And I, I, I would like also here to bring a thread of scholarship that keeps saying that that's not the same. Actually, all, most of your data argue in favor of civil resistance. So civil resistance, what does this mean? It involves hey, a, sorry, not a, a construction of a collective identity, B, a definition of action, and C, a program and organization. So without this kind of condition, nonviolence is then simply a spontaneous movement that may not accomplish its goal. And here, maybe I can get some help here. I want to show the, you know, that's what some call the Tiananmen, and you call also the Tiananmen syndrome. Mm -hmm. This is an example of spontaneous protest, mm -hmm. nonviolent spontaneous protest that doesn't achieve any goal. We don't learn from it. That's, that's the problem I'm having here. How much of all our thinking as scholar is really channeled in the understanding that people have also on the ground. And the, the other most recent one, because it's directly related to the Syrian conflict, is this one. This was 2012, the March of the Brides. Three women saying in, in Damascus, we don't want that. We don't want violence. But there is no definition of action, no program and organization. So the key operation here is maybe not nonviolence. You know, it may be what are the conditions for civil resistance. That's what Gandhi, referring to his own movement that you mentioned, he was very adamant to say, you know, don't come with all these ideas that, you know, we are all peaceful because we are religious. What did he say? He said that the success of his movement could be called a mathematically proportionate mm -hmm. success. Yeah. I know this kind of argument from scholarship goes against the romantic vision of everybody moving together and, and destituting the tyrant. But this goes back to the point that um, when you have only protests that are not organized, that there is no clear political vision behind, then it fails. The Arab Spring is a Unfortunately, a case in point. It started as non-violent political kind of expression, enough is enough. But what did we see? It, we saw at some point 
that this protest could not maintain unity among people. And the moment that the protest or the initiative became partisan issue, started the fragilization of the whole thing and, and the fact that um, indeed the, the, the state, what's called the deep state, the military had no intention at all to uh, give up the power. So there is a lot of, uh, again, it's about the relation, what, also what is the capacity of this movement to succeed in democracy versus non-democracy. I mean, democratic countries are more, you know, friendly uh, to this kind of of, um, of protest, even when they are not mass movement and organized movements. The protest, the women march against Trump is a good example. I know you're following this slowly. But in, in non-democratic context, you need to be organized. And you need to have a clear consensual vision. That's what I'm saying. It's not only the mass, it's the organization. If you have one or the other in non-democratic context, you, you may not succeed. The third point uh, I want to make is about the religious dimension of it. And that's where the scholars who work on religion and violence, like Rona Snare, uh, Scott Thomas, Cecilia Lynch, uh, usually do not connect with this kind of work. Mm -hmm. uh, I, we belong to a tribe, political science, which is also divided. So this is very interesting to see that they do not connect with this kind of work. And why? Because most of the time they fail to see the specific of the religious dimension in this kind of argument on nonviolence. Most of the scholarship on religion and politics now is clearly saying that, to use the term of a late of one of this group, Alfred Stepan, religion is multivocal. We cannot say it's either or. And history shows that religion can fall on either side of the argument, violent or nonviolent. And it can be used by state and civil society alike. And that's where religion, when religion is seen as divisive, that's where the problem starts. In, in, that's why you were at the end of your talk, you were mentioning the fact that maybe, you know, faith is not anymore seen as part of the consensus. Yes, that's the point. You cannot say everybody is an agreement on the role of religion, even in American society. So imagine in other societies where religion has been politicized to the, from the get-go. It is a divisive element. Um, so that's also very interesting to see that the scholars who do peace building are not listened to by the scholars who do religion and violence. Because they say, you are just seeing the tippy top of the, of the proverbial iceberg, and if you don't dig into it, take into account the context, and look at the connections, you're not going to get very far. And also this scholar like Alfred Stepan, late Alfred Stepan, or even D David Steele, they keep saying, we know how to bring success in conflict resolution, and you peace-building expert, you don't. And they say, 
Alfred Stepen was very proud of saying, I have contributed to the transition in a peaceful way in Latin America from the military region. And David Steele has spent his time in, in Bosnia after the conflict talking, organizing groups. And that's what the, the scholars say. You do not do only personal, individual work. You have to work on intergroup relations. And this circles back to my first point about the relational. And, and so I would say that um, it's, it's a shame that the, this field is so fragmented. You see, you have the peace building, you have the religion and, and, and politics, and they don't all automatically mix. So I really appreciate knowing from, you know, where, where you come from. This is a very difficult, challenging work to do, and, and thank you for doing it. Voila, I, I stop here. Thank you for those incredibly great comments. Very engaging and gives me a lot of food for thought. Um, the first question, um, so you, you brought up a few things related to this issue of um, the impact of the argument on existing conflicts or conflicts that are underway. So one of the things you brought up is this idea that Doug McAdam, Sid Tarot, Chuck Tilley, and others have advanced that actually the, the system in which these movements arise predisposes them to success or failure as well as to nonviolent or violent resistance. So in other words, in easy contexts like democracies, it should be more likely that people use the easy tactic, nonviolent resistance, or easy method of nonviolent resistance, and it should be more likely that they win because it's easy. Um, so uh, in places where uh, it's hard, um, you should see people using the harder technique, violence, and you should be at seeing it less likely to succeed because it's hard. <laughs> so this is uh, the, the technical term for this difficulty theoretically is endogeneity, uh, which is a word that no activist has ever um, appreciated my bringing up because, because one of the things that it says to people on the ground is that you're actually not determining uh, actually your choices. Um, your choice set is already completely limited by your environment and nothing that you can do is going to affect it um, because your environment predisposes you to success or failure. Now that's kind of a caricature of the political opportunity argument. Um, McAdam argues that actually it's more of a process, a process of interaction, and um, that the strategic interaction between opponent and challenger and third parties is really what determines the outcome, but there's no predictive power at all um, because of the complexity of this. So scholars like them really uh, tell us, don't even bother to sort of um, come up with generalities. Instead, what you should do is just focus on descriptive analysis of things that have already taken place. Now, in my case, um, there are a couple things. One is I tried to deal with the endogeneity issue in our, in our 2011 book. There's a whole chapter devoted to this issue of do your circumstances preordain your choice of nonviolent and violent resistance and the outcome of success or failure. And we found actually using all kinds of different statistical techniques and qualitative techniques that there was actually no support for that, that the findings held even when we took into account this potential um, endogenous process. And many other people have since replicated that by using instrumental variable analysis and other techniques. Um, so there is actually something to the general argument, the, the general descriptive statistic that nonviolent resistance, despite the setting, 
um, tends to have higher success rates than its violent counterparts, precisely because of the set of interactions that then become available um, to the dissidents and to the opponent. Um, it actually limits the opponent's range much more than the, the dissidents, mm -hmm. whereas violence does not limit the opponent's range, but it very much limits the range for the dissidents. That's how I would put it. Um, in terms of how do we intervene, I'm working on a, a project right now with Maria Stefan where we're collecting data on all kinds of different um, kind of actors that can um, or that have provided support to uh, nonviolent movements and the types of support that they provided. So for example, um, faith communities, transnational solidarity networks, foreign governments, uh, corporations, foreign media, different types of actors that have kind of come in and try to influence in some way the situation, um, largely to defend or protect um, or support the nonviolent resistance campaign. And what we're very interested in is understanding which types of support by which types of supporters help these campaigns more than hurt them. And so um, I don't know yet, but uh, hopefully we'll know in, in a year when we're finished with the book. Um, you're quite right to point out that uh, civil resistance and nonviolence are not the same thing conceptually or practically. In fact, uh, one of the things I'm always telling my students is that there's a big difference between nonviolence, not violent, non-violent, and doing nothing. Um, and each of those has its own set of practices and associations. Nonviolence is a is a set of principles and and. Um, kind of morally informed choices about the way one wants to live one's life. And that can often entail mobilization, but it can often also just entail a, a set of uh, guidelines that people want to live by. Um, not violent is really a lot of things. It's anything. I'm being not violent right now, as far as I know. <laughs> um, and then there's also not nonviolent action, which is not necessarily, um, it's certainly not violent, but it's also not necessarily advancing anything. You know, it's just people behaving in a, a nonviolent interaction. So there's a, a big set of differences um, with regard to civil resistance, which has a civic quality to it. It is, um, as you mentioned, organized. Um, there is a qualitative difference um, to the, the level of organization and capacity required to engage in civil resistance. Um, the tank man photo that you put up is kind of the bane of of a lot of people's existence in this field because it's what people associate with the technique. But in fact, um, it, it's sort of like the, um, uh, there's a lot of people that in the, uh, in the terrorism uh, world of, of scholars often get this question when they're trying to say that torture is wrong. <laughs> and then they get this question of, well, what if you have the ticking bomb and you have the person who said it and you have you know, 15 minutes to get the answer to save 10,000 people? It's sort of setting up this um, hyperbolic hypothetical. Tank man is like the hyperbolic hypothetical of why civil resistance fails, right? Because <laughs> people are like, look at tank man. He had no hope. He, you know, it was very brave, but he wasn't going to you know, change um, the, the communist government of, of China. Um, and uh, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> he was not. He was not going to change anything. He was being very brave. He was engaging in a personal act of uh, civil disobedience. And that's not what civil resistance necessarily is. Civil resistance is not necessarily protest. That's not right. all protest is civil resistance either. In democracies, protest is so normal that many uh, civil resistance scholars don't even consider it civil resistance because it's legal. It's not, you know, it's legal, it's normal, it's part of our routine. Um, so uh, that, you know, asks this question of what, what is different about it. And certainly the mass dimension and the organization dimension are what's different about it. And so uh, there's a very important study 
by Jonathan Sutton, Charles Butcherin, and Isak Svensson that argues that um, one-sided violence, which is episodes where a state kills like 100 people and, and, a, and, and some kind of collective action, in, in cases since 1990 um, where there have been episodes of one-sided violence, if they were against protests that were not associated with any larger campaign, they always succeeded, meaning they crushed the, the protests. But in cases where um, the episodes of one-sided violence were against protests that were associated with a broader nonviolent campaign, 50% of the time, those, not, those campaigns ended up overthrowing the dictator in spite of the one-sided violence. So it really speaks to the, the necessity of an organizational infrastructure that can, can maneuver, right? It can allow the, the people power to be resilient to this type of thing and, and to maneuver in the context of escalation of repression. Um, your last question about um, it's easier to mobilize or use civil resistance in a democracy. Most of the data that I presented were uh, campaigns in either non-democracies or yeah. against democratic military occupiers. Um, and uh, it's actually, um, there's, the, the civil resistance campaigns are more likely to set on in authoritarian regimes of the kind that I'm studying yeah. here because of the maximalist claims. Um, and they're, they're, it has no impact on whether they succeed or not. Um, that said, as I mentioned, it's very easy to protest um, in democracies. But, but the key is not the, it's not the nonviolence. It's that right. the movements that succeed are organized movement right. with a key um, action definition, with also a core identity. And, and so the, the nonviolence is a, is a visible aspect of it. But if you don't have a mass of people, then sure, the government, mm -hmm. as you say, 5% of the population with an organization, mm -hmm. they can do a lot of you know, mm -hmm. damage to the. So it's not what is bothering here for lots of people, not me. I'm just restituting here lots of discussion, is that it should be called civil resistance. I agree. And, and, and that because the idea, again, I am, I'm, more, I'm not interested only in the academic mm -hmm. part of it. Indigenous is not the point. The point is people have to mobilize, right? right. And I'm, I'm concerned by, you know, the brides. That, that, yeah. That's what concerned me. That's, the yeah. point is not to go out and say stop and we are for peace. The, right. the point is to have people aware that there are things to do to be efficient. You need some kind of Gandhi somewhere, you know? And that's a very different take about the nonviolence. That's what yeah. I'm saying here. Oh, yeah. And for mm -hmm. me, this is a pol the practical implication. Because Vermont, uh, young people, maybe I am wrong or too old, but they tend to be romantic, you know? Like, yeah, we got pizza and this. Uh, <laughs> You need organization, and, and then maybe you will be successful in your nonviolent movement. Sorry, yeah. I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I think it's, it's quite true. And I use the term civil resistance because of this, um, because I think it is dangerous to conflate. Um, I, I think it's dangerous uh, to conflate kind of a naive attachment to the use of nonviolent resistance yeah. as a form of righteous presentation or performance with success. Yeah. I mean, not all these campaigns, you, you don't succeed because you're nonviolent. You succeed because exactly. you do politics better, yeah. right? So, um, but, but it just turns out that the campaigns that do politics better 
um, also have the nonviolent dimension. But I, but I agree with you, and that's why it's my term of choice. Enough of us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the lady, I, I give priority to the RPP people, that's uh, for the 10 minutes, so I don't know if you are RPP. I struggle a lot between the term, uh, or maybe I don't struggle, I go back and forth between civil resistance and nonviolent action. And, um, and since I hear you both really going towards civil resistance, I kind of want to question that a little more because it seems that many of the reasons why people are doing politics better in the nonviolent cases are, uh, seem to be as a result, as Erica pointed out, of um, the value that nonviolent action, being nonviolent is having for their group. And I also consider the fact that um, not being aware of the power of nonviolence um, or nonviolent action could be partly responsible for the decrease in effectiveness in nonviolent campaigns um, and a turn to violence um, that we've seen being correlated with um, less effectiveness. So, and I think it can be confusing with the literature too, um, because I think in a lot of cases, civil resistance and nonviolent action in the literature has been used um, to mean the same thing. So, mm -hmm. I just wanted to kind of raise some caution about that, and I wanted to hear if you had any further thoughts given these considerations. Yeah. Well, I'll just mention one thing. One of my, there, there are two concerns I had with using the term civil resistance, and well, three, three concerns. The first is that um, the second word, resistance, suggests that um, you have to be opposing something at all times that you have to be opposing something kind of on the defensive almost, right? And so it, it kind of precludes, at least in people's minds, a whole category of nonviolent action, which is intervention and the development of uh, parallel institutions or constructive program. So it, it sort of suggests you're never going to be on the initiative or taking the initiative. You're always going to be on resisting oppression because oppression is just always going to be there. So it kind of prefigures a, a constraint on the scope of our imagination about what's possible. The second concern I have is that the term civil has some kind of colonial origins, um, civilizing, civilization, um, related to pacification, meaning respectability, meaning be a good, respectable civilian citizen. Um, that I think can have some difficult connotations, particularly in post-colonial contexts where people don't want to be told <laughs> that they're being civilized by their behavior where they're trying to be really militant. Um, and then the third thing that's difficult about it is exactly the point you brought up, which was this point of um, making it less clear that part of the, the rationale for the technique um, is kind of contingent on people maintaining nonviolent discipline, right? So um, I still prefer it more than nonviolent action in this country at this time, because I think that um, contextually uh, there is less baggage associated in the United States with the term civil resistance in practice than the term nonviolent action, which um, in, in this country um, people associate with uh, nonviolence 
uh, and you know, when and the and the most derogatory thing they could say, kumbaya, polit respectability politics, or whatever. And so I, I actually think civil resistance um, connotes a more kind of aggressive or assertive position. And in this country at this time, I think it's easier to bring people along on exactly the concept that you're talking about. Um, on the other hand, I, I do have concerns with it. I just think it's the least worst of the of the terms. You know, and there, there's a great uh, example some of you are probably familiar with where Robert Helvey went to um, do a training with some Burmese rebels on their invitation a couple decades ago. And he showed up and he said, I'm here to do my presentation on the, the strategic dimensions of nonviolent struggle. And they were like, no, 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 that's not what we wanted you to come here for. We're, we're rebels, we're militants. And he was like, oh, right, I forgot. I'm doing my presentation on political defiance. And they were like, that's the one. So he just, you know, he did a quick change to his slides and gave the same talk, right? So, but the, the nomenclature really matters. And, um, uh, you know, in practice, it's really important to sort of know where we're at and what, what deck we've been dealt. And I think in the United States, we've been dealt a deck where, you know, right now, um, it's easier for people to get what you mean when you say civil resistance compared to nonviolent action. Uh, I just want to say one thing which I don't agree with is your reading of civil resistance. Um, it is not read knowing lots of different contexts outside the West as, as a colonial. And even if it has a colonial origin, people have agencies in this area. They have uh, utilized it. They even talk about civil state. They, the term civil has really not been seen anymore as a sort of imposition on them. So I, I would be very, for me, this is an ideological position more than reflecting the reality on people. So I would be very cautious here. Again, I understand whether they come from from a good heart, but the reality is people use the term, want to be seen this way. And it's not negative. A civil resistance, if it's done in the way that Mahmoud Gandhi did it, it's certainly not passive or, or reactive. So that's, that's yes, um, Nadia, here. Thank you so much for your talk. I just have two quick questions of clarification. One is, uh, where do you situate uh, actions of, I don't know, maybe self-violence in your in your um, uh, theory? So, for example, actions of self-immolations in Tunisia that started the Arab Spring or so-called Arab Spring. Um, I, I just want was wondering how you define them. Um, the second is, how do you understand the role of routinization? Um, of an audience or a society to violence. So for example, a violent action can have different impact on nonviolent groups that are comparable in terms of their ideology and strategy depending on the political history of the country. For example, in Lebanon there is sort of habituation and routinization of political violence because of the history of the country, whereas in Tunisia, after the Arab Spring, we had two political assassinations that were seen as a drama. And when I talked to my friends in Lebanon, they were like, oh, we don't care about two political assassinations. So uh, I was wondering how then you translate this into your, your theory. And just a last question that I was really interested in, your last part about the role of faith in, and spirituality. 
Um, and um, uh, I was wondering um, whether you could say a bit more about how you see the conditions for a productive interaction between secular movements and faith-based movements, because um, I, I realized that um, there, there, there is only so much that can be accomplished when, when the minute you bring religion in the conversation, like when you have a deep conversation about religion, it tends to create divisions. And um, it's interesting that you brought up the example of Barber and he uses the category of morality because it's, it's more inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, but whenever you start having deep conversations about theology or, or, or religious traditions, there are many disagreements. As, as you said, a lot of resistance coming from secular groups because there may be some agreement on refugees or poverty, but the minute you bring identity or LGBT rights, it's much more divisive. So, I mean, this is a, a, a question I, I'm really wondering and struggling with, like normatively and strategically, based on your work, what do you think are ways to move forward with this uh, impasse and dead end? Mm. Thank you. Should we take a couple? Or yeah, we take um, a couple. I'm gonna go the other way. Thank you very much. Um, my question just resolves. I mean, it, it sounds to me like they're the violence and nonviolence are mutually exclusive, but there's often an argument that says, um, you know, this, the nonviolent movements are successful because there is a violent movement, right? So I'm just curious, how do you usually answer to that question? Okay. Yes. I take another one and then. Yeah, you, the, the gentleman here, yes. Thank you. Um, Erica, thank you very much for a great um, presentation and thanks for your work in general. Um, first question, I, I wanted to focus in on your last point about the decline and success of these movements over the last 10 years. Uh, I'm wondering if you see a global normative explanation in addition to the one you gave about the, the the declining role of spirituality in that. Um, I noticed that you know, the, in the data you gave, there's a, a real spike in the increase of effectiveness and success over the 1990s, which, was, which correlates with that sort of golden decade when democratic uh, regimes increased dramatically during that period of time. It's in between 89 and the end of the Cold War and 2001 and the beginning of sort of the war on terror. I was thinking when you mentioned the Serbian example, actually the one that came to mind actually was Tiananmen Square where the military eventually did fire um, on protesters in 89 and you go back to 72 with Bloody Sunday and so on, which are just anecdotal examples, but it seems like there was maybe a normative shift uh, during that period of time. And I'm wondering whether over the last 10 years there's been a normative shift in the other direction. And, and the other thing that correlates interestingly with your drop in success is the rise of the internet, which I found sort of paradoxical. Um, we, at least in, in, the, in the work in the field, you know, we, we have so much hope on, in terms of internet and social media helping these, these movements to be able to organize and so on. So I'm just curious if, if you've thought along those lines on, on that. And just real quick on a second question about the, the vision piece that you were talking about. Um, the neck of the works I, woods that I work in is more in West Africa mm -hmm. and um, interfaith movements yeah. actually uh, have a tremendous role in providing some spiritual vision uh, in a lot of the nonviolence movements, peace movements that, that happen in, in the region. Um, and I'm wondering uh, whether you've, um, in, in your data sets, have you sort of plumbed in a little bit into some of the interfaith uh, components of this? Because 
Uh, it, what's really interesting, at least in this part of the world that I look at, but I think in other parts as well, is that the interfaith movements um, have, a, have a really important role in sort of moving enough beyond a single religion mm -hmm. um, so that the, the, the entire sort of movement uh, itself uh, has sort of a broader political agenda uh, that comes outside of just the one religious um, uh, you know, pocket that it may have originated in um, and providing something that's a little bit um, maybe easier to mobilize but still has that, that strong ethical component um, and that spiritual motivational component that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Right. Well, you have a lot to respond Great. to. Great, sure. And then I will take a second round. Second round, okay. So um, on this question about uh, how do we categorize self-violence or self-immolation, um, it is a gray area. Um, most people, myself included in the field, do not count it as violence because um, the definition of violence is usually a strict one that requires a direct um, physical harm of another. Um, but it is definitely a gray area because it's unclear um, the sort of psychological or political effects that um, self-immolation in particular might have on others. So sort of how it's read locally, I think, um, could complicate uh, that, which is why a lot of scholars question that category. Um, but, uh, you know, I think right now that's kind of where the field is on it. Um, the second question you had about how do we deal with the routinization of a society to violence. Um, in, in my research, what I try to do is um, account for um, kind of peace years or duration of existing conflict as a proxy for how routine um, violence is in a society to understand whether that affects the outcome of a, uh, a nonviolent campaign or the, or the likelihood of the onset of it. Um, it's also an important um, factor in, it, in trying to figure out what happens to the society after a major mobilization of any kind, a nonviolent or violent one, if a, if a society is um, has a long-standing um, kind of history of internal violence. Um, it may be more likely that, um, you know, even after a nonviolent campaign, for example, they'd be more predisposed to relapse into civil war because of existing polarization or infrastructural incapacity. And in fact, um, the, the existence of a pre-existing conflict doesn't affect the onset of a nonviolent campaign or whether it succeeds, but it does predispose a society to higher risks of relapse into civil war after, which simply is kind of the um, unsurprising finding that, that societies who are in the civil war trap really need a lot of help to get out of it, regardless um, of whether they have a civil resistance campaign or not. Um, one of the things to um, point out is that that's kind of a, using a series of proxy indicators that are large-scale um, internal conflict and don't necessarily mean different forms of criminal violence, violence against women, uh, domestic violence, things like that. And, and I think one could do a, quite a productive study on trying to understand those dimensions. Um, in terms of um, one of the more important factors in understanding um, the uh, kind of relapse into so civil war as well, um, neighborhood is actually more important than a country's own history. So for example, if, if you're bordering a couple of states that have a, an, an armed internal conflict, you're more likely to get one um, just because there's uh, really dramatic population flows. As a result, there can often be a lot of instability on borders and things like that, and it can lead to kind of internal instability. So those are just some things from, from within the literature. Um, your question about what is the most productive interaction between um, faith-based uh, communities and movements today. 
You know, a lot of the, the um, contributions of faith communities that I mentioned really are kind of like pragmatic ones. They see faith communities as sites for capacity building and increased political leverage. Um, and I think that that's probably the most productive source of cooperation with largely secular movements. On the other hand, I think the comment that was just made about interfaith communities, that's, that's kind of a different animal because then they're kind of coming together on a set of more kind of universal ethical principles um, that already, by as a function of their being interfaith, have kind of already bridged in a way that may then appeal to more secular um, activists. But I think in most Western democracies right now, this is tough um, because of the kind of distance that's been put between a lot of different progressive movements and the church over the past 30 years. And it, it's something that can be um, you know, revived, but it just is gonna take some effort, I think. Um, the question about uh, what happens, or what is the interaction between uh, violent flanks and the success of nonviolent movements. This is a very popular argument that many nonviolent campaigns succeed because they have an armed wing that's sort of increasing their leverage or increasing um, their ability to look like the good guys in light of the, the, these much more dramatic radical militants. Um, I've tested this in an, an article that I wrote with Kurt Schock that was published in 2015 where we looked at the effects of violent flanks on the aggregate uh, success rates of nonviolent campaigns and found that they actually reduce the success of primarily nonviolent campaigns. Um, and we think this is primarily because they, they, they almost never actually really increase the bargaining space for, for the nonviolent component. They actually just subject them to greater risk because most of the, the states that are confronting these movements don't actually differentiate between <laughs> the nonviolent and the violent dissidents. As soon as a violent dissident group becomes organized, they're all the same, right? Especially if they are close. And so, um, you know, you see the same level of assassination campaigns and other types of suppression take place against the nonviolent actors as the violent ones. And even if there are kind of momentary concessions where they're trying to reward the nonviolent actors for playing fair, um, those are almost never long-standing. In fact, the communities that the violent flanks purport to represent are usually placed at much greater risk of, of larger scale and more intense repression. Um, we also see that uh, movements that embrace violent flanks tend to become smaller and more homogenous in their participants. So that then reduces the ability to elicit those third-party supporters and uh, those defections. In terms of the global normative change, um, so here's, here's what keeps me up at night, for real, is, uh, is the question of whether the rise of nonviolent resistance after World War II and into the current decade is really a function of the post-war human rights normative environment and the sort of um, you know, liberal international order, which is now unraveling and whether what we've now created is an expectation that nonviolent mass resistance is possible and effective when actually um, it's going to become increasingly dangerous over time because of changes in the global normative environment. Um, it's obviously too early to know, um, but that's one of the things that in this recent decline uh, worries me slightly. I actually think the most convincing arguments for this decline are less about the violent flanks and more about the um, wising up, so to speak, of authoritarian regimes and becoming less 
willing or, or less likely to use the bluntest instruments of force and using much more smart repression, um, which they've laid out in very explicit documents um, where they've tried to lay out their techniques that they've been using um, to, to suppress nonviolent dissent in their countries or, or preempt it in the first place. So I think part of it is explained by that and sharing of that knowledge across different authoritarian and semi-authoritarian regimes. The techniques are well documented. They're things like always blaming outsiders and foreigners for the unrest, which you'll see every single one of them do now, basically. They, um, they try to discredit um, the movement actors and dissidents by calling them criminals or terrorists or traitors or coup plotters. Um, they will um, use a, a, a variety of forms of intimidation, harassment, and burden increasing by like raising student debts and you know, making the administrative burden for organizing in their countries much higher so that many uh, groups can't do it. They use selective terror to scare people, um, and then they round up the, the most skilled dissidents and put them in jail on corruption charges or sexual assault charges or whatever they can come up with. And so it's a very, um, it's a very difficult uh, time to be like a nonviolent dissident in Russia, for example, which is like the place where many of these techniques were um, honed and articulated and then shared um, with, uh, with um, Russian allies. So I think, I think basically uh, you know, that might explain part of it, but not all of it, because the movements still emerge. So your second point about the rise of the internet, I think, is, is really important on this. I think that one of the things that, the, that digital communication has done is it's made it much easier for people to learn about the end game of nonviolent campaigns, but not the entire run up to it, where, um, where there was planning, organization, visioning, and all of the things that make for a successful nonviolent campaign. So sometimes it's very easy to see um, from videos and, and you know, two minute clips about a nonviolent campaign that if you like go to the streets for 17 days, you can topple a dictator. And that's like the total wrong lesson to learn from, from any of these successful campaigns. Um, a lot of uh, the people in the Serbian um, bulldozer revolution will say things like 95% of what we did was planning and preparation and only 5% were actions. You know? so, so if all you see on the internet is people taking action and mobilizing prematurely, then it's not surprising that people are doing it and then failing more often. So I think there might be a combination of, of the two. Um, and then, um, you know, I don't have data on interfaith uh, movements specifically. Uh, the NAVCO2 data um, has a variable called religious diversity um, in describing a campaign in a given year, but it's got a lot of missing uh, data because it's really hard to know in some of these campaigns. We don't have a lot of really good primary materials on that variable. And um, I think that there's a huge possibility of people taking the data that we've already collected and adding out um, new variables that are of interest to people that want to understand the, the association between religion, interfaith, communities, and, and spirituality in these movements and their outcomes. So it's like an open field as far as I know. Um, okay, there were, I kept, please. Yeah, thank you for your presentation. I was just wondering your point about how nonviolence increases the riskiness of repression. I'm wondering in your research, do you see, I don't know what to call them anymore, nonviolent or civil resistance actors um, grappling with maybe the implication of that is to push, push, push and provoke something awful happening. Um, I'm thinking the case I 
most familiar with is the US Civil Rights Movement, where they were definitely grappling with sort of the implications of that. Is that just something that you've encountered, um, that moral question being raised? Do you wanna? I don't see any. Okay. Oh, here. Thank you so much, Erica. Um, I was wondering regarding the point of uh, their learning curve of dictators. Uh, so, knowing that uh, it's getting harder to organize to exercise nonviolent resistance, uh, which strategies can. Uh, help these movements to be more effective in face that their adversaries are uh, taking a step ahead and uh, are using some strategies to, to dilute what they're trying to, to create. Mm. I take one more. Uh, the, the, uh, yes. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I have two questions. One is in your Statistic of 3.5% of the population, if you have looked into it all, defining if there are different subsets of that population that um, lead to more successful outcomes for movements. For example, if like 3.5% of the population could include mostly young adults or mostly people of a certain demographic or a certain constitu constituency within that. Mm -hmm. I let you respond. Great. I think it's gonna be the last round, no? Okay. So um, thanks for these questions. Uh, the, the first one is, is um, are there examples where movements have really grappled with the moral issue of how much to provoke uh, an incident of mass repression? Uh, certainly all of these movements, uh, in my data set at least, I think face the possibility, a very real possibility of mass repressive episodes. And in well-documented cases like Gandhi's Salt March, they fully anticipated that they were gonna experience mass repression and um, engaged in a great deal of preparation, personal, spiritual, and physical, to absorb it. And um, there were lots of, lots of people killed um, in the aftermath of the salt march during the assault on the salt uh, industry, uh, industrial factories and things like that. And it was just, um, it was the type of thing where um, the explanation was we have to be prepared to absorb losses, just like any type of you know, military campaign would. Um, people being killed by an oppressive system is not a failure of nonviolent resistance. It is what an oppressive system is. It's dramatizing the fangs of it, um, as, as Gandhi said. And in the civil rights movement, um, I think one of the, the key moments where um, this debate became the most poignant was in the aftermath of the killing of, of four girls in the context of a march where MLK was sort of brought to the carpet um, and questioned by some of the people in the sort of inner uh, circle of the, of the SCLC and SNCC and sort of said like, you know, are we, I mean, is this really what we wanna be doing? And, and what he said was those girls are gonna be equally exposed to the violence of this system, whether they're marching in the streets or whether they're walking to school. And so it is the system that killed those girls and us marching to try to protect our children is the only way out. You know, so, so I think that it's, it's incredibly complex, a really important moral question that I think most of these movements that, are, that have any staying power at all um, have to face down. Uh, the second question, in light of a potential learning curve um, among dictators, what should movements do? 
I mean, I think the key takeaway here is to avoid um, a situation where they're mobilizing prematurely, like where, where they, the, the lesson that they learn is just like, let's bring people to the streets and then try to organize them and, and sort of to reverse that, um, organize and, and then mobilize. Because the, the, the opponents are incredibly skilled and savvy at this point. Another thing is, is um, a lot of people have gotten caught in online organizing um, because they're, it's so susceptible to, um, to interference or, or, or surveillance. And so um, you know, it's, it's a characteristic of our time that people use digital tools to try to communicate, but they're all very public now. And so um, that's, that it can be really costly. Um, and then uh, I haven't looked at whether there are particular subsets of populations that can themselves constitute the three and a half percent of uh, of the population that would be that thresh that revolutionary threshold, um, but I do think that um, in cases where, for example, the claims are being made by a minority in the country, um, it's very difficult to win, like especially a secession campaign, by just mobilizing three and a half percent if it was only constituted of that population. Um, because uh, the, in, in East Timor, for example, it was a very deliberate choice to branch out and form links with Indonesian students um, on, like in Jakarta and other kind of major cities within Indonesia, who then helped to leverage the kind of political power through international networks um, to, to bring the East Timorese issue um, to the international community's attention. Um, and if they hadn't done that, if they didn't have kind of a, a solidarity effort, it was just a tiny place that, you know, that the bad things were going to happen without anybody watching. And so, you know, I, I think that there's there's something to the type of movement that you're operating and like whose support is necessary in order to to achieve that that uh, third party leverage. Okay, um, I think we have come to the end of this session. I'm going to wrap up. I just want to say one thing on the role of religion and interfaith movement. Again, um, the, the danger is always to isolate the religious actors in one box. What, what experience shows is that when religious groups are called upon for broader kind of concern, like the Colombian example I was talking about, which means that it should not be about faith and secular, which is kind of you know the tendency we see to 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 see the the division between the two, and and there are objectives that can be raised that bring people together. Education was one of those, but again there is no list. It depends on on the context, and it makes it much more challenging when religion, what we call in the latent phase of the conflict, has already been a divisive issue between people, even before the conflict starts. And that's a problem that I think is, is a problem for lots of Muslim countries. Um, but um, to go back to the Tunisian example, secular and Islamists could talk to each other because they had an experience of sharing the prison of Ben Ali. So it was not so much that you know they were divided by religion, but much more unified in, in the desire to go beyond the system as it was. So that, that's the kind of thing we, we have uh, seen around. So I would uh, thank you very much.
and um, Paul Bag Dean Hampton for the final wrap-up and survey announcement. <laughs> yeah, just a, a few announcements. First of all, I'd really like to thank our um, uh, uh, presenter, um, uh, uh, Erica Chenoweth and Jocelyn Cesari, for a really wonderful uh, conversation. There's a lot of stake in these issues. Um, <laughs> and um, to have um, uh, you know, serious data collection and evaluation and serious um, interpretive methods um, it, it is really important, actually, uh, you know, to, to, uh, uh, not just for the past, but as many of the questions were indicating, for the present and the future. I mean, how, how do we think the best way possible about um, uh, this kind of um, uh, uh, civil resistance or how, uh, 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 how, uh, whatever term we want to, to use for that, and whether there are these global trends um, that are rightly keeping you up at, uh, awake at night, uh, whether there, there are um, trends that are going to make it much more difficult for nonviolent um, civil resistance movements to succeed in their objectives. So um, thank you for opening up a really important um, topic and for helping us connect it a little bit to uh, faith traditions and spiritual movements, not as oppositional or separate estates of the realm, but how they might relate in, in some way is something we're really interested in pursuing in, in our RPP colloquium. So thank you very much. Um, the Harvard Coop will have uh, copies of um, uh, uh, Erica Chenoweth's book, uh, Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict, for sale uh, during the reception. So if your appetite has been whetted by this and you'd like to uh, study more deeply, please uh, um, uh, pick up a copy of, of the book. And then just a, a, a final a few announcements. If you're not yet familiar with the work of the programs that co-sponsored tonight's event, please be sure to check out the Women's Studies and Religion program at Harvard Divinity School um, and the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Kennedy School. Our next RPP colloquium is on March 1st and will feature um, uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Ray Hammond um, uh, from Boston speaking on ministry to the marginal, the power of partnerships. Um, so thank you very much for that. And now I think we have some gift exchanges or even gift presentations. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you.